Good morning and happy Sabbath. Truly, what an unusual time we are living in today. Just a few weeks ago, who would have guessed that we would be worshiping in this type of venue, in this type of format online? Uh, but the last few months, everything in the world has changed. And really, we are passing through a great storm together collectively as humanity, as a world, as a nation, as a society. And really, I can't remember a time in my lifetime, uh, really, that we have as uh, people all together been able to say that we are passing through an experience all in the same boat, the whole world, uh, quite like what we're going through right now. Mine's, it reminds me of the world wars that I'm sure our ancestors or maybe some of our parents and grandparents remember uh, some of those types of experiences. But really, this is a unique time that we're going through. And in this storm together, I know a lot of us probably are wondering just what is God's purpose in all of this? Why would God permit such calamities, such catastrophic events to happen in the world? And what good can come out of this? And that's really the focus of our study together today. I want to look in the Bible to see if God has revealed something to us, to see if we can find the blessing that is hidden in the storm. So I invite you just to bow your heads with me right where you are as we uh, prepare to open God's word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today with anxious hearts. Uh, you know the ordeal that the world collectively is passing through. And Lord, we do not look to our human leaders right now. We don't seek guidance from um, human sources of wisdom, but we look to you. And so as we are about to open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. Give us some word from on high, some encouragement, and help us to see as heaven sees, perhaps even seeing the blessing in the storm. Uh, guide us in our worship and our study now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to take our minds back to begin this message to a hillside on a peaceful day in Galilee. Jesus had been teaching the multitude for the whole day, and they've been listening with rapt attention to every word that has proceeded from his mouth. And as the day grew long, the disciples urge Jesus to send the people home. They haven't eaten all day. At least go buy some food from the villages around. And you know this story. There were 5,000 men besides the women and children who certainly were there. And Jesus said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Well, little lad came forward with his loaves and fishes. Jesus multiplied the food and fed everybody in that massive crowd. But it's interesting because during that time when people were sitting around and talking over the food that they were sharing together, there was a little bit of a, a, a buzz, some electricity that started to permeate through that crowd. And what started as a whisper in one corner began to gain steam and the people were talking to each other saying, Jesus must be the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of David. And if he's the son of David, surely he's the one who will restore Israel 
to its former glory, to the golden age that we had under the rule of King David and King Solomon. And so the people began to have a collective uh, movement. They, they formed a, a coalition, if you will, to try to crown Jesus as king. We're actually told exactly how this happened in the book Desire of Ages uh, on, in page 377 and 378. The hopes of the people rise higher and higher. This is he who will make Judea an earthly paradise and a land flowing with milk and honey. He can satisfy every desire. He can break the power of the hated Romans. He can deliver Judah and Jerusalem. He can heal the soldiers who are wounded in battle. He can supply whole armies with food. He can conquer the nations and give to Israel the long-sought dominion. In their enthusiasm, the people are ready at once to crown him king. Can you imagine what must have been going through that crowd? That was a large group of people and they were very excited. They thought this was our chance to finally get rid of those pesky Romans. Well, how did Jesus respond? Jesus certainly saw the movement that was afoot and Jesus must have had some thought and some opinion about what was going on. Well, let's take a look. Uh, we can read this in the Bible in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 and 23. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, the other side of the lake, that is, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he has sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. So that's an interesting response by Jesus, was it not? Here's a group of people who loved him. They were on his side. They were finally, you know, ready to accept him as, with their whole hearts, at least it seemed that way. And they were about to crown him king. But Jesus immediately stopped the people in their tracks. And apparently the disciples uh, were part of this crowd. And Jesus immediately dispersed the crowd, sent them home, sent the disciples into their boat to set sail across the lake. In short, Jesus told everyone, okay, in a nice way, it's time for you to get lost. Jesus knew that nothing good would come out of this movement that the people wanted. They wanted to crown him the king to overthrow the Romans, but Jesus knew that his mission on earth was not a political one. He was not here to uh, foment political uh, revolutions, but he had a spiritual kingdom to set up. And he knew that if these people got what they wanted, the Roman armies would come in and, and squash this rebellion and there would be untold devastation and bloodshed, and his mission would really be uh, retarded in a real way. And so he realized he had to stop this movement. He dispersed the crowd, sent them home, sent the disciples down into their boat, and then Jesus did something very interesting. Jesus needed something. What did he need? Jesus needed some social distancing. Now, of course, that's not what they called it back then, and uh, Jesus didn't use those words. But in essence, Jesus needed to isolate himself 
from humanity for a period. You see, Jesus understood that in order for him to be able to carry forward the mission that God had given him to accomplish, he needed to be in tune with God. He needed to, be, to have communion with the Almighty. And the only way that could happen is if he isolated himself from the affairs of men so that he could re- lock himself, so to say, in the audience chamber with God. If Jesus needed some time of social isolation, some social distancing, what do you think about you and me? Do you think that's something that would be important for us too? To find time quietly on our knees in the audience chamber with God? In fact, that's actually one of the prime lessons that Jesus teaches us in this story. Why did he send the disciples down into the ship? Why did he send them down onto the boat to set sail across the lake? It's because Jesus understood that these disciples needed some quiet time too. They needed some time away from the crowds, away from the hustle and the bustle, the busyness and the stress of ministry, and they needed some time to think. And the reason why Jesus realized that they needed time to think is because Jesus could read their hearts. And he knew that the disciples were distressed. They had distractions upon their minds and they were burdened with a great many things. And really, this is the emphasis of our study today. What was happening in the hearts and the minds of the disciples and how was God trying to reach them? You see, Jesus understood that the disciples were part of the crowd and there were some things that they weren't too pleased with about how things ended that day. So let's take a quick look at what were some of the things that were going on through the disciples' minds. Let's turn our attention back to the book Desire of Ages now. And this is on page 379 and 380. They had left Jesus with dissatisfied hearts, speaking about the disciples now, of course, more impatient with him than ever. Excuse me, more impatient with him than ever before since acknowledging him as their Lord. They murmured because they had not been permitted to proclaim him king. They blamed themselves for yielding so readily to his command. They reasoned that if they had been more persistent, they might have accomplished their purpose. Unbelief was taking possession of their hearts and minds, or their minds and hearts. Love of honor had blinded them. They knew that Jesus was hated by the Pharisees, and they were eager to see him exalted as they thought he should be. To be united with a teacher who could work mighty miracles and yet to be reviled as deceivers was a trial they could ill endure. Were they always to be accounted followers of a false prophet? Would Christ never assert his authority as king? Why did not he who possessed such power reveal himself in his true character and make their way less painful? Why had he not saved John the Baptist from a violent death? Thus the disciples reasoned until they brought upon themselves great spiritual darkness. They questioned, could Jesus be an imposter as the Pharisees asserted? Can you imagine these thoughts that were passing through the disciples' head, their minds? Just a few hours previous, they were ready to crown him king. And when Jesus didn't go along with what they wanted, they talked themselves into a very dark place of questioning whether Jesus was an imposter. Maybe the Pharisees were right, they thought. Wow. What a precarious 
and spiritually dangerous position the disciples found themselves in. This is why Jesus sent them out on the lake alone, hoping that they would use this time wisely to re-consecrate themselves to God, to be in prayer, to search their hearts and afflict their souls and come back into communion with the will of the Father. But is that what the disciples did? That wasn't, was it? But I want to dig a little bit deeper and to think through what were some of these distractions that were plaguing the minds of the disciples. What caused them to so quickly lose their faith in Jesus and, as we read, to harbor a spirit of unbelief? Uh, There are probably many different ways to break down what was going on in their minds, but I want to just focus on three distractions that were on the minds of the disciples. The first distraction was the prospect of prosperity. The prospect of prosperity. You see, the disciples had just had one of those experiences that made their tummies full and their hearts full at the same time. They saw, just like all the crowds around them, that Jesus would had the power to make sure no one would ever be hungry in the nation of Israel. Imagine having someone like that as our leader. Of course, the armies would never fail. The markets would never crash. The harvests would always be sure. This was what was going on through the disciples' heads. Jesus could usher in an unending period of prosperity for the nation of Israel. And who doesn't like prosperity? But you know, it is far more dangerous for the Christian during a time of peaceful prosperity than during a time of trouble. Isn't that true in your own experience? I know I've been there. We pass through a period of relative tranquility and we think everything is just fine. And it's easy for us to slack off in our personal devotions, in our prayer, in our uh, consecration to God. But Jesus looked at this situation and realized, oh boy, this is not good. These disciples need to reflect on this and to think things through. Prosperity is dangerous for many people frequently. And how is it today? It's interesting that the world has been going through a period of relative prosperity recently with the markets rising ever higher and higher and unemployment rates at the lowest point in so long. And it seemed as though the good times would roll on forever. And sometimes we mistake, we just assume rather, that it surely must be God's will for us to have an unending perpetual period of prosperity. Isn't that right? Well, we know that we live in a sinful world and until we are in the earth made new, God's will is not necessarily for us to have zero problems in our lives and just have unending prosperity because he knows that prosperity can be dangerous. And how often we come to God with our prayers for something we desire, some achievement we want to uh, achieve, some attainment we want to obtain, and we already in our minds have made up what we want the answer to be, but we simply come to God asking him to rubber stamp our decisions. That's not how this works. And the disciples were distracted with that unfortunate misunderstanding. 
that prosperity must surely be God's plan for them in perpetuity. Of course, the Bible does tell us in 3 John 2, uh, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou prosperous, prosperous, and uh, be in health just as your soul prospers. But just as that verse says, God cares ultimately, most importantly, for the prosperity of our spiritual experience. And that's what he cared about for the disciples. And here, I want to look at the second distraction that was on the minds of the disciples. The second distraction on their minds was the distraction of politics. Politics. Well, when I say politics in this particular situation, I mean literal politics. The disciples were ready to crown Jesus king. In fact, let's take a look at the passage in The Desire of Ages, page 378, once more. Consulting together, the people agree to take him by force and proclaim him the king of Israel. The disciples unite with the multitude in declaring the throne of David the rightful inheritance of their master. Interesting. It is the modesty of Christ, they say, that causes him to refuse such honor. Let the people exalt their deliverer. Let the arrogant priests and rulers be forced to honor him who comes clothed with the authority of God. You see, the disciples had a conflated notion of the spiritual kingdom of God and the physical nation of Israel. And really, it is hard to blame them. The nation of Israel for a long time, since their founding, had their religious faith and their national identity closely intertwined. You remember the Mosaic laws. Uh, In the Old Testament, Moses gave laws that ran from the civil uh, to the religious to the health and sanitation and all in between. The religion of the Jews and the Israelites and their state were closely intertwined. And so it's easy, and, and we really do need to cut them some slack, the disciples, to think that the nation that Christ was coming to establish, the kingdom that Christ was to establish, must be part and parcel integrated with the physical nation of Israel. That's not the case here today, of course. In a nation, particularly in America, where there is a wall of separation between church and state, uh, we live in a very different world and a different governance structure. However, I believe the lesson is still relevant to us today, and that is, human nature really has not changed much in the past 2,000 years. And we know this to be true. I'm sure that the disciples back in their day when they were sitting and relaxing, probably talked about the political affairs of the more the, the recent changes in leadership of their province or of the town or the Roman politics that was going on, probably. And how often for us today, or how easy rather is it for us today, likewise, to conflate the values of, uh, of our politics with the values of our faith and intertwine them in a way that perhaps it becomes a distraction. It's easy for us sometimes to mistake our political or nationalistic or patriotic zeal for religious fervor. 
it's easy to conflate those two things. And that can lead to a distraction for the, from the true mission that God intends for us today to accomplish. Just like back then, Jesus knew that unless the disciples would stop looking to the earthly secular government and the political revolution as the solution, they would never truly be able to accomplish the mission of, God, of Christ's spiritual kingdom, particularly them as the apostles to be the founders of the Christian movement. They wouldn't be able to fully articulate and encapsulate the mission that God had intended them to accomplish. And so Jesus recognized this distraction in their minds, and that's why he gave them some quiet time, some social distancing to think things through. And so this leads us to the third distraction that was on the minds of the disciples. And this third distraction is popular opinion. Popular opinion. You know how it is when you're in a crowd and a large group of thousands of people, particularly like what the disciples found themselves in that day, how easy it is to get swept up in the energy and, and the herd-like movements and mentality that sweeps through a, a crowd like that. And the disciples, I'm sure, they were right along with it and they were thinking, finally, after all this time, people are finally seeing the light. They're coming around to our ministry. They're finally recognizing Jesus for who he really is. Wow, this is wonderful. And so they went along with the crowd. They thought the, crowd, the people want Jesus to be king. Why not give the people what they want? And they were influenced by the groupthink mentality that was happening on that day. And you know, back in those days, they didn't have social media. But nowadays, with the internet and social media and our smart devices, we don't even have to be physically in the crowd of thousands of people. We carry our crowd with us all day long. And it's so easy for us to be influenced, even nowadays, by what everyone else is thinking and what everyone else wants. And the disciples neglected to think, well, what would Jesus really want? What does Jesus really think about this? They never consulted him before they went along with the crowd to crown him king. And that's why Jesus needed them to have some time alone. But you know, there's something fascinating about the, uh, these three things that we just talked about. And that is that prophetically speaking, we are told that the final crisis will be initiated by a popular movement that compels the political arm to enforce religious decrees, presumably for the prosperity of society. Isn't that fascinating? That, prophetically speaking, at the end of time, the very distractions that we see occurring in the disciples' experience will play a part in ushering in the final crisis. Now, I'm not saying that what we're going through right now is the final crisis, but what I am saying is that we're, if we're not careful, if we don't take Jesus' advice to heart to come apart, rest a while, contemplate, think on these things, have some quiet time meditating with, with our Heavenly Father, 
it's easy for us to also be swept up in the delusion that will come upon the world at the end of time. And so with these distractions on their minds, did the disciples seize the quiet moment, peaceful time Jesus gave to them to think things through? Well, we know that they didn't. The disciples were murmuring. They continued to foment this dissatisfaction that was breeding in their hearts. And they continued on in their distrust of Jesus. Now, what happens next? Did Jesus merely leave them to their own devices, to their own delusions? Or was there something more that Jesus wanted to do to help them? Well, let's take a look at the Bible now. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 24, we see that something happens after the disciples started off from land. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So the disciples were on the boat. They had a time to think. But after a while, troubles came. A storm started to brew. Is there something special about this storm? Is there something significant behind why this storm was permitted to come upon the disciples at this precise time? Well, we are actually told some inside information, again, in the book Desire of Ages, on page 380. Those were hours of large blessing to the disciples, but they have forgotten it all. They were in the midst of troubled waters. Their thoughts were stormy and unreasonable, and the Lord gave them something else to afflict their souls and occupy their minds. God often does this when men create burdens and troubles for themselves. The disciples had no need to make trouble. Already danger was fast approaching. A violent tempest had been stealing upon them, and they were unprepared for it. It was a sudden contrast, for the day had been perfect, and when the gale struck them, they were afraid. They forgot their disaffection, their unbelief, their impatience. Everyone worked to keep the boat from sinking. In storm and darkness, the sea had taught them their own helplessness, and they longed for the presence of their master. Notice carefully at the end of that statement, finally the disciples wanted Jesus around again. You remember they were so dissatisfied, they thought maybe Jesus was an imposter after all. But something snapped them out of it and said, we need our master. Well, what was it? It was the storm. And notice carefully, the statement we just read tells us clearly that God permitted the storm to come to shake them out of the dangerous position that they were in. Can storms sometimes be a blessing? Absolutely. God often does this. He permits troubles to come into our lives, to shake us up from our complacency, to shake us out of our doubts, to crystallize the priorities that we ought to have in our lives, and to finally look back to Jesus. You see, the storm gives focus. 
The storm gives us focus on what is most important and what is not important. Imagine you are flying on an airplane and you look out the window and dark storm clouds are gathering around. You feel the turbulence, the bumps, and the rocking of the airplane. And then the captain comes on the intercom and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, the storm is real bad. We have lost our engines and the plane is going down. Prepare for impact. What would be going through your mind right then? Would you be concerned about the latest movements of the stock market? Or the next business venture that might come your way? Or would you really be preoccupied at that moment with the next presidential election, perhaps? Or what about our social media likes and shares and comments that might be happening on our Facebook or Twitter accounts? Would any of those things matter at a time like that? Ultimately, what really matters will come into clear relief. And usually, for most people, the things that come to mind are things like faith and family. And there it is. The disciples in the middle of the storm-tossed sea had clarity in an instantaneous moment. All the things that they cared about, all the things that they thought the people cared about, faded from view, and they realized they just desired to have the presence of their master. There, as it says, the famous saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. And isn't that the truth? The disciples were shaken out of their doubt, their despair, and their distress. And all of a sudden, they realized, I need Jesus. And does Jesus leave them alone? Did Jesus ever stop watching them? You know, it's easy sometimes. Uh, Perhaps the, the, the disciples thought this. Perhaps they thought, I was so dissatisfied and disgruntled with Jesus, maybe I'm not worth saving. Maybe the Savior is disappointed enough in me that he's just going to cast me aside and leave me to my own devices, to my own destruction. Maybe the disciples were regretful and worried and thinking in that same manner. And how often we might find ourselves in such distress. Maybe we committed some sin, we've made some mistake, we've said some unkind thing, we've made some decisions that we regret and we think, and then a storm comes or some terrible calamity and we wonder, have we walked away too far from God to be saved? Well, the rest of the story of the disciple in the storm gives us hope. Let's turn to our Bibles now once again. This is in Mark chapter 6, verse 48. And he, Jesus, saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them, walking upon the sea. So, of course, we know the rest of the story. Jesus walks on the water out to the disciples. And then Peter comes out on the water, and you know that story. But I want to focus and see a little bit more detail to see uh, what the Desire of Ages has to say about this. This is on page 381 of the book Desire of Ages. Uh, 
Jesus had not forgotten them. The watcher on the shore saw those fear-stricken men battling with the tempest. Not for a moment did he lose sight of his disciples. With deepest solicitude, his eyes followed the storm-tossed boat with his precious burden. For these men were to be the light of the world. As a mother in tender love watches her child, so the compassionate master watched his disciples. When their hearts were subdued, their unholy ambition quelled, and in humility they prayed for help, it was given them. What a promise. Jesus walked out on the storm-tossed sea to save his disciples. And, And notice, these were not disciples who were living up to all the light that they had at that moment. They were dissatisfied, disgruntled, doubtful of Jesus and his mission. Jesus went out on the water to save them. The condition merely was they had to humble themselves. They had to ask for help. They had to be willing to be helped. Is your heart subdued? Is your ambition quelled? Have you been humbled? Those are some of the conditions that Jesus needs before he can help us. And how does he get us to that state? He permits the storm to come. There is a blessing in the storm. It gives us focus. It turns our hearts and our minds back to Jesus so that we will permit him to help us. And lest you think that you have gone too far for Jesus to reach you, just think. The disciples were out on the storm-tossed sea. And to what degree, to what lengths did Jesus go to save them? Jesus walked on water. Jesus walked out on a storm-tossed sea to save his doubting disciples. Is there any question as to whether Jesus wants to save you? Jesus will walk through a storm-tossed sea to save you too. And the disciples teaches us the lesson that we do not have to have fear. We only need to have Jesus. And the lesson of this story also teaches us that sometimes God permits us to pass through storms so that it grows our faith in order for us to pass through greater storms that are still yet to come. The disciples were on a storm-tossed sea once before with Jesus. You remember he was sleeping in the boat. They wake him up and he calms the storm with his hand. Except this time, Jesus was not in the boat. The disciples, though, should have remembered who it was that sent them out in the boat to the middle of the lake to begin with. Jesus commanded them to set sail to the other side. You remember, we read that. Would Jesus send his disciples out to their death? No. Jesus would not do that. And so may we also learn the same lesson that as long as we are residing in the will of God and we are precisely where he called us to be, even if it's in the midst of the storm, Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. He is right there with us. And if needed, he will walk across the storm, uh, the white foamed billows to reach you to save you if need be, just like he did for the disciples. 
And you know, I, I, during this difficult time that we are passing through, there have been a couple promises that have gone through my mind related to what we've been just talking about that I want to share with you now. So the first one is found in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. It says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. The disciples surely were passing through the waters, weren't they? Was Jesus with them? He sure was. And I also think the second half of this verse talking about walking through the flames, surely the three Hebrew boys who were tossed into the fiery furnace were thankful for this promise of God to be with them through the flames. And of course, we're going through a metaphorical storm right now as a world. We're not necessarily in the fire or in the waves, but we are going through a storm nonetheless. And here's a promise I'm sure you've heard a lot recently that is a little bit more specific to our particular situation found in Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Precious promises. Precious promises when we pass through times of storm. But the question today is, is there something that's distracting you from Jesus? Is there something that Jesus has permitted the storm to shake us out of? Some burden that we are carrying that is preventing us from going to him. Is there something on our hearts and minds that is preventing us from having a full-hearted consecration to our Lord? Perhaps this is the reason why he has given us this time of social isolation, of social distancing. Perhaps this is why he has sent a storm to shake us up out of our complacent lethargy to help us to come to repentance, to come to a point of recognizing our need of our Savior. Maybe it's something like the disciples, a distraction, politics or popular opinion, what people think. Maybe it's one of those things. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know your particular situation, but I do know this. There is very few excuses left for us not to come to Jesus in the quietness of our quiet time. The movie theaters are shut down. All the sporting events have been canceled. Restaurants We can't go out to eat anymore. The vacation hotspots also are not available. Travel is restricted. The list goes on and on. All we need to do is 
shut off the news, step away from the social media, turn off the Netflix, whatever it is that we're distracting ourselves with, and look to Jesus with humble hearts, with our hearts open for the eye of the Lord to search us and to show us what is in ourselves. And perhaps this is the time that God is saying, there is yet a greater storm ahead. And we know, prophetically speaking, there will be worse times in the future. And Jesus says, I'm permitting this storm to come now as a blessing for you to come to me in humble contrition, humble contrition and full consecration. And so is that your desire today? Do you want to come to Jesus? I know that's my desire. And in conclusion, I just want to share one last passage with you that re- recently has spoken to my heart. For those of us who are concerned, scared, anxious, unnerved about the situation, I think it ties in very nicely with everything that we're talking about today. And it is found in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 687. There are many who become restless when they cannot know the definite outcome of affairs. They cannot endure uncertainty. And in their impatience, they refuse to wait to see the salvation of God. Apprehended evils drive them nearly distracted. They give way to their rebellious feelings and run hither and thither in passionate grief, seeking intelligence concerning that which has not been revealed. If they would but trust in God and watch unto prayer, they should find divine consolation. Their spirit would be calmed by communion with God. The weary and the heavy laden would find rest unto their souls if they would only go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Spend time in communion with God and in prayer. And perhaps this is the blessing that God had in store for us in the storm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the storms that come our way, not because we enjoy pain or suffering and not because we wish ill or catastrophe on anyone, but because we know that even in this, good can be accomplished. You can wake us from our distraction. You can enable us to come to Jesus with an open heart, humble and emptied of self. And so as we go through this collective storm together, we know your eye is still upon us. You are always watching. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You will even walk on the storm-tossed sea to save us if need be. But you are trying to save us, spiritually save us, by turning our hearts away from self, away from the things of the world, and to the only true solution to all of life's problems. And so today, Lord, we commit ourselves to you anew. Speak to our hearts. Help us to seize this unique time that we have to find oneness with you. And ultimately, may we be prepared and ready for your return, which we believe is someday very soon. And we thank you for these things. And we pray all of these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.